Welcome to the sixth episode of the ongoing series, The Ten Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness, here on Sfarim Chatter, and I'm Nachi Weinstein. In this episode of the series, we diverge to discuss an analogous Christian legend, that of the warrior king Prester John. Full disclaimer, although a Christian legend, it is very relevant to Jewish history and the interest in Europe and at the time in the Ten Lost Tribes. In fact, some think that the origins of the Prester John legend actually come from Eldad Hadani's story and those letters and what was known from Eldad. Additionally, the Ten Lost Tribes make an appearance in the Prester John story. They're, they're there. They're, the Sambatian is there. They're living nearby. Um, under Prester John, it's a mythical land of beasts and fantastic creatures, you'll, as you'll hear more in this podcast episode. Furthermore, it's cited in many sources, including forthcoming episodes, which you'll hear about in David, David Ravani, uh, Menashe ben Yisrael, and many others. Uh, to give one example to explain why it's so important, um, and it's come up already in this series, but to give an example, Rabbi Avadibar Tanura, who, the famous Rav, commentary on in the 15th century, he traveled from Italy to Eretz Yisrael, and writing letters back to his father from the land of Israel to Italy, 1488-89, when he gets to Yerushalayim, he says, and I will read and translate, Ubi'ir hazois, and in this city, Tamid mikol l'shaynes hagayim, from all languages, there are people me'aram, u'me'bavel, u'me'artes ha'presti yuni. There's people from various countries, including from Prester John, Yishma'elim, uh, Muslims, Arabs, Venoitzer, and Christians. And he explains the, you know, various history as it's uh, you know, related to that letter. But skipping forward, as he calls it, Sabatyon, he asked about it. And what I heard there, this is what I heard. I'm not sure. You know, someone heard it from someone else. However, Mashin is barely what is, what I, you know, it's factual to me. And I know without doubt, in one of the you know, parts of the, the kingdom of Prester John, Eretz Horim, a land of mountains, Many uh, mountains and valleys. They say it's ten days away. Over there, definitely the there are uh, Jews. They have, you know, Nesim, Anasi, a duke, a prince, and 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 kings. That more than a hundred years he's fighting with. They're fighting with Prester John. Great wars. And the latter times, Prester John gained the upper hand. And he smote them a mighty blow. And he came into their land. And he, he destroyed them and they're basically gone. And whoever was left, he did many decrees in order to... Uh, and he compares it to the Greeks at the time of the Hasmoneans, etc., etc. He goes, etc., and he goes on and on. And this is, by the way, just a fascinating letters. Uh, it was published in a critical edition, Italia Lirushalayim, by Menachem Emanuel Hartom and Avram David, uh, a number of years ago on a paperback. I'm not sure if it's still around. But just to read a small snippet from Ravadi Bartunura to show you how important Prester John is for the story of the 
10 Lost Tribes. The corporate sponsor of this series, as always, Gluck Plumbing, for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full-service division from boiler replacement, main sewer line, snake outs, cameraing main lines, to a simple faucet league, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1, and let them know you heard them on the podcast, and that's why you're calling them. To sponsor an individual individual episode for this series, or for any episode on the podcast, please email me, farmchatter@gmail.com, or see the information in the show's notes below. Additionally, there's now a Farm Chatter Substack, which is a sort of blog, and there is a link for that in the show's notes. You can sign up. There's a free option, which is standard, and most of the stuff is free, and anything that's posted will get emailed directly to you. Um, there's also a paid option, monthly or yearly, which is, if you want to show support for the podcast, there'll be some bonus content for paying subscribers. Um, there's also a Farm Chatter WhatsApp community, one chat where I post new books in Farm. I've mainly moved off Twitter X more to WhatsApp, so there's a link for that in the show's notes. There's also two connected chats where you can, you know, talk and things like that, because um, the, the main one is just admin only. And finally, if you could please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite listening platform, especially Apple, if you can write a review, I uh, do appreciate it. So enjoy this episode of the series, and again, to be clear, it's a Christian uh, legend, but it's here because of the importance, and really helped me understand what's going on with the Ten Lost Tribes is something that comes up all over the sources and you really can't understand it fully without understanding this. I will mention also that there is a really good episode on Prester John on the Our Fake History podcast, and I'll put a link to that in the show's notes as well. I highly recommend listening to that. I, I found it very insightful and interesting. Um, and I will also obviously link to what we discussed in this episode, and this will come up in future episodes with um, Mati Ben Melech discussing and uh, the episode about David Ruveni and more in the Master of Israel. So it's uh, quite important. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast and another episode in the ongoing uh, series, The Ten Lost Tribes, Jewish Consciousness. Uh, in this episode of the podcast and of the series, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Keegan Brewer, who is a research fellow at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And we will be discussing Prester John. Now, I, I will say, even though I said it's the 10 Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness, this episode is not specifically Jewish um, as much as the other ones, because it's about Prester John, which is, a, I guess, a Christian uh, legend. But the interesting thing, is, as um, listeners will be familiar from other epi- episodes in the series and subsequent to come episodes, Prester John... Just you can't get away from him when you talk about the lost tribes and things associated with it. So I thought it was appropriate to do an episode about Prester John, being that it is uh, so important here. And Dr. Brewer uh, uh, published a book, kind of an edited, you know, a, a translated and a written edited volume, everything all together, called Prester John: The Legend and Its Sources. So compiled and translated by him, and this is all the primary sources and an introduction and more. We'll talk about that. So thank you, Dr. Brewer, for joining me. Mm, my pleasure. So let's start with, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, cool. I'm an Australian uh, medievalist, um, 35 years of age, if that's relevant. I suppose it is. Uh, I grew up in Sydney. And uh, what I study is um, medieval European conceptions of the world. I like to look at psychology, emotion, and cognition, the way belief interacts with how we feel about things. Uh, so I sort of applied this lens uh, during some of my early research to the Prester John legend. Um, I haven't uh, looked very closely at the Prester John legend for many years, and much of the work on this was done circa 2009, 2010. Um, and uh, since then, I've been working on various other matters, including the Third Crusade, um, 
reactions to atheism in medieval Europe um, and and some other things, uh, some particular individuals. So that's a little bit about my background. Okay, so how did you become interested in Prester John and to publish this volume? Well, I think um, in a way, everybody's interested in Prester John. So it, the topic itself lends interest. Uh, it's just such a fascinating thing. Uh, but it was actually during my honours year at the University of Sydney, I was searching for a topic to to work on. Uh, and the professor that I was working with, Associate Professor John Pryor, uh, who's uh, a man that I have deep respect for. Uh, he was an expert of the Crusades and is an expert of the Crusades. And so I was looking for something that interested me, but also tied in with his knowledge and skill set as a kind of middle ground for a thesis topic. And what I settled on was the legend of Prester John. So I was working particularly on Latin sources of the 12th century. Um, and during that process, uh, I sort of realized that there's actually a lot more going on with the Prester John legend in later periods, which had sort of been almost neglected by scholars. Uh, scholars tended in general to focus on that 12th century period of Latin sources, which is what I had initially started with. But uh, there was so much more that I was finding that just wasn't reflected in the literature. So that's how I think uh, the, the project um, started just realizing that that notion that the Prester John legend was so much more complicated and, and broad than that had been treated before. Okay, so let's uh, let's tell listeners about Prester John, the legend of Prester John. What's just we're going to go more in depth, but what's the basic story and overview kind of to start? The basic idea is that in medieval Europe. Um, there was this idea that in the Far East or in some far-flung place, uh, there was a powerful Christian king who was willing to help them during the, the time period of the Crusades, who was intensely rich, who had all of these sorts of magical uh, items like a fountain of youth or uh, a mirror that can see anywhere, his kingdoms full of mythical monsters and hybrids and lavish wealth. Uh, and, and this is, I guess, the gist of the Prester John legend. It was something that was desired and hoped for um, as a part of uh, medieval European conceptions of the far, the far East initially. And just to mention this right away, because you mentioned like the Crusade, and actually this volume is part of a Routledge series. It's called Crusade Text and Translation, Volume Twenty Seven. So the relation to the Crusade here is because this is going on at the Crusade period, and Christians were kind of hoping for this Prester John to come help them defeat the Muslims. That is a part of the story, yes. Um, and that appears in certain people's writings at certain moments of tension, and we always need to dehomogenize. But just to give the broad arc, um, European contact with Asia is a really fascinating thing. Uh, obviously, it's it's land-based, so you can simply walk to Asia if you're, you know, uh, if, if it's if if you wanted to and if you have the resources and so on. Um, but uh, European direct contact with Asia had been largely uh, non-existent for centuries. We have Attila the Hun coming across um, in the late antique period. And from there, we've got about half a millennium of basically no contact or no known contact. There's one or two tiny little things that maybe actually some Europeans went to Asia, but maybe not. Um, and they're just very uh, sort of unknown and throughout this time period, um, we do have trade between Asia and Europe, but it's through intermediaries. And in fact, uh, for your listeners may be interested, a lot of these intermediaries are Jewish families who are, um, you know, moving across and, and trading 
uh, bit by bit rather than going on full journeys across. So the Silk Road was active as a trading route, but it was not one person walking from end to end, but rather trading uh, through intermediaries. So during that period, um, we have a lot of European myth-making about the East uh, based on ancient Greek sources, ancient Latin sources, which filter a bunch of myth myths through, uh, such as the monstrous races where, you know, there's various types of so-called monsters, uh, you know, men who have their heads on their faces on their chests as opposed to their heads, men who live from smells, men who have one foot and bounce around, men who kind of roll around like a wheel, all sorts of really funky monsters coming in through the ancient texts. And that's how Europeans sort of formed their concepts of the East during this time period. What makes the crusading uh, situation very different is that for the first time, you have large numbers of people of European cultural backgrounds entering um, West Asia, uh, you know, modern Israel, uh, Lebanon, Syria, these areas, um, and coming into closer contact with the diversity of peoples in those regions. Uh, and that sort of changes the mindset of Europeans um, gradually and, and is a part of the, the journey towards modernity as Europeans are colonizing it and moving across various landscapes. Okay, so we, we call it Prester John. He's called kind of Prester John. What does that word Prester mean? Where does that come from? Excellent question. Um, Prester is actually from Latin presbyter, which means priest. So I don't know why this has happened in English, uh, where the term has remained as Prester John, when it really should be John the priest. Um, and this is a part of his personality throughout the, the representations as well, that he is both a priest and a king who governs both uh, what Europeans separated in this time period, like a papal hierarchy of power and a secular hierarchy of power with kings and emperors. So Prester John, John the priest, connects both of those things because he's both the head of the church in the uh, in the East in their conception and also the, the like a temporal lord as well. Um, but in other languages, we get, um, you know, this preservation of the idea of John the priest as opposed to Prester John. Like in French, it's sort of Prêtre Jean, um, you know, Prêtre Yanni in Portuguese and De Priester Johannes in um, German, so on and so forth. So, but another thing about Prester John is this, this Prester John, I mean, Prester and John, both those uh, two things together. Is that kind of like Caesar or Pharaoh? Because this this kind of lasts through the centuries. There's not, there can't be one Prester John, right? Even in the myths of people at that time. This is an interesting question and something that hadn't, I think, been fully explored and needs to be more closely explored than what I managed in my book, which is the idea that is it a person called Prester John or is it a title, the Prester John? Um, now, in medieval Latin, there's no articles, no words, the and ah. So you can't say necessarily, um, you know, the Prester John in Latin and say this is a title. But in the early texts, we do get the sense that it's one person uh, writing to or, um, you know, receiving information from others. So it does seem like in the early representations, it is one person. That seems to evolve across the late 12th and early 13th centuries and then further on later. And that sets up the longevity of the myth because instead of it being one person who, you know, surely would be mortal and die at a certain point, uh, the Prester John becomes a line of kings or the name of a group or so on and so forth. So later on, particularly in the later medieval period, an early modern period, we get the Prester John is just a proxy for the uh, emperor of Ethiopia, the Negus, which is the term they use. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to Ethiopia as a key part of the story. But so uh, this Prester John, as you said, means priest, but 
is he considered in most of these uh, legends, there's variations, and we'll, we'll get to that, uh, a, a priest, or is he a priestly king? Is he a warrior priest? What exactly is he kind of, what is he? It's almost all of the above. What makes him exciting to medieval Europeans is that he sort of gathers all of those qualities together, but also the hope that in the far-off world, which is, you know, foreign and strange and alarming to medieval Europeans in general, uh, there is someone out there who is a Christian, who is powerful, who is doing Christianity better than us, and who might be able to be contactable uh, for support during the crusading period. So that um, that hope, that desire, I think is really important because the Presidon concept is really a, a medieval European concept. Uh, and so really it's a, it's a mirroring of, uh, you know, the human mind in that period um, and what was sought for and what was felt absent uh, at home. So when does this legend kind of begin? What are the origins? There's a famous letter. When, when, does, this be, when does this start? Yeah, great question. So I guess before it starts, we've got the First Crusade. So for anyone who's not familiar with that, basically in 1095 to 6, we've got the call from the Pope uh, to go on crusade to Jerusalem. Um, and that uh, culminates in what is almost like four or five years of, of journey towards Jerusalem. And then the Christians do, in fact, capture Jerusalem and set up a society there that lasts until 1187 or even beyond, depending on what exactly you're talking about. So the successful capture of Jerusalem in, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say successful, the successful from their perspective capture of Jerusalem, um, it does change European society a lot. So we actually have an embassy later in uh, 1122 from a mysterious unknown person. And this embassy is recorded in two accounts. And the guy's name is John the Patriarch or John the Archbishop. And in these two separate accounts, uh, both of these are preserved uh, in my book, if you want to read them. And the idea basically is that this guy from we don't quite know where he claims to be from the Indies. Uh, he appears in Rome and is looking for uh, um, support from Rome to, uh, in relation to a succession crisis in his country. And then the Romans um, uh, react differently in each text. Uh, so it's very mysterious. Um, in one of the texts, it says basically the Pope, you know, threw up his hands and went, hooray, everything's great. Um, and then uh, in the other text, uh, it says the Pope was skeptical until this guy swore an oath on the Bible. And then he became uh, believing of this tale. Now, in this tale, the guy from India, allegedly from India or the Indies, uh, represents his, um, his place, his uh, home, as a land of extreme wealth, uh, extreme piety and a place where St. Thomas revivifies annually uh, to bestow um, grace upon, upon the locals. Uh, so this kind of mythologizing is central uh, to European conceptions of, of India and had been for many, many centuries. So what exactly happened uh, is, is really open to interpretation, but it's a fascinating little moment. And that's really the start of the Prester John legend, because we've got India, we've got uh, the lavish wealth, and we've got this guy called John the Patriarch or John the Archbishop appearing out of nowhere. So this this guy, this story, this kind of predates the actual circulation of the quote-unquote letter of Prester John? That's right, yes. So this is 1122. We then have one other moment, which is 1145, and then we've got the uh, Prester John letter, which is 1165 to 70. 
Um, so, yeah, go ahead. I mean, what, you can talk about that. So the the moment of, in 1145 is the first time we get the term presbyter Johannes in Latin. So this is the first official account of the Prester John. And this is, again, relating to the Crusader states. So we have, um, you know, European uh, cultural background, people living in the Crusader states and hearing word from further east. This uh, really gives them contact with not only what we would call the Middle East, but also Central Asia and little whispers or even of, of East Asia uh, on occasion. So in this particular case, it's a uh, there's a guy from the Crusader states who hears word from the east of a battle. He then travels to Rome and tells about this battle to the Pope, and then another guy records it. And in that record, we know kind of the gist of what he said. And he says that Prester John has come across the river in, in the east and uh, done battle with some, some brothers uh, and we know the name of those brothers is mentioned, that's the Samyados, and from that name we get Sanjar, which is a real person. So we can tie this event back to a real battle that happened um, between an East Asian warlord and a, a, a Persian, um, uh, you know, a Muslim uh, warlord, and that battle ended up successful for the uh, East Asian warlord. So this was sen setting off alarm bells um, in the Crusader states, it, it would seem, because they felt that this was uh, evidence uh, for the Prester John legend, I guess. So something that's missing between all of these little moments of time in the text is the orality. People were talking about the Prester John legend. Historians can't really access what was said. But it's clear that between these little blips of texts that we have, people were continually talking about this legend as something exciting or, or you know, true or untrue or unknown. Um, but here uh, it would seem, yeah, that's the first uh, official uh, record of, of Prester John. Yeah, and then the letter is just kind of, uh, I think, 1165, 1170, and it's written to the Byzantine Empire or purported uh, to be written to him, right? And then so in that letter, that's one of the texts that you uh, translate that we still have. Mm. Uh, this letter is really where the Prester John legend takes off because it's so exciting. It's been described as an orgy of grandiloquence. It's just, it's one of the most dramatic pieces of medieval European literature, and it's it's extremely creative. In a way, it is creative. In a way, I also feel it's not because really what it does is just gathers a lot of the tropes that already existed among Europeans. So the Prester John letter is a letter uh, purporting to be written by Prester John to uh, European leaders of various sorts, sometimes addressed to the Pope, sometimes addressed to the, the Byzantine Emperor, sometimes addressed to a specific Byzantine Emperor or specific Pope. But there are so many copies of this thing. It's one of the most popular pieces of literature from medieval Europe. Uh, I think in general, people nowadays don't really know much about it. Um, but in the medieval period, it was insanely popular. So there's almost like a little bit of a bias there. Um, so we might know a lot more about Robin Hood or or, uh, you know, King Arthur, this kind of thing. But they seem to write a lot more about uh, Prester John. So this letter survives in almost 500 copies, translated into lots and lots of different languages, you know, French, Italian, Irish, Serbian, Russian, whatever, you, you know, European language you can think of almost. Um, basically, it is from the Prester John describing his kingdom to European lords. So his land is full of gemstones. He's got all of these you know, hybrid creatures and monsters. He's got secret caves and huge palaces. 
He's got an army that'll do anything he says and beat everybody uh, in various versions of this text. Um, you know, little details getting added and thrown in. It's a real mishmash. So uh, one thing that um, readers might, uh, oh, sorry, listeners might not understand is that uh, medieval texts are not static as well. So in today's society, if you've got a Harry Potter book, it should be the same as the next one. But in medieval Europe, you've got people copying things by hand. So they lose bits or they change bits or they misunderstand bits. They add things together. So actually, this one letter really takes on a life of its own. And there's so many different copies which are smushing together different aspects of European mythology about the Far East, which makes it really fun. So as you say, this is really popular and it's kind of this wild tale. But, you know, we'll talk more about some of the details. But as you already said, and, and by the way, we didn't get we mentioned the Tembos tribes are in there. The Sabatian River is in there. So uh, it's kind of a, a real wild tale. You can imagine, you understand why people uh, were enjoying it. But were they believing it? Were they, was there, were there, what, what was the belief in this really? That's an excellent question, and it's one that I grappled with um, in the in introduction to my work. The, the idea is, I think, it's very hard to figure out a lot of the time, and we really have to dehomogenize because some people may have believed it, so others may not have. The evidence for reception of this letter is quite thin on the ground, which is really interesting uh, because it was so widely copied. Occasionally, the scribes who are copying it add little comments at the end, like, you know, you can believe this if you want to, I don't, this sort of thing, or, um, you know, believe it if you want to. Um, but those are incredibly rare as well. Another way that we can test the reception of the letter is um, by how they were binding it into books. So if it comes along with a variety of historical texts or a variety of other letters that are from real lords to real lords, then maybe we can make the assumption that uh, that person believed this to be a real letter. If we find it bound up with other sort of semi-fictional texts, then we can say maybe this person thought it was like fiction. But because there's so many copies, it's impossible to generalize uh, because we actually find all of these possibilities in various uh, locations, in various manuscripts. So it's extremely hard to generalize um, about the reception of the letter in general. Uh, one final thing that we can do is ask to what extent it was reported in history books. In general, in medieval Europe, there was the concept that history writing had to be the writing of truth, true facts. Um, so if we find the Prestigeon letter in those kinds of books, then we can assume that this person uh, took it as a true fact. Uh, in general, we don't find the Prestigeon letter in history texts, which seems to imply that they took it as a bit of a lark, um, you know, some good fun, but something not necessarily accurate. All of that being said, a person can logically believe that Prestigeon exists somewhere off in the Far East, but not believe that the way the letter represents him is accurate. And uh, I made a, 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 a comparison to Macbeth, for example. I can read the play Macbeth, knowing that this was a real uh, lord in Scotland, uh, at a certain time and place, um, but I can believe that that Macbeth is fiction. So the same thing can happen with Prester John. You can read the letter and think, "Wow, that's funny and a good, you know, good luck," but nevertheless believe in the reality of the Lord uh, Prester John. That seems to be, I would say, the dominant position in general. Medieval Europeans did seem to take Prester John as a real thing. Um, but uh, they took the letter as as humorous, fun, and almost a little frivolous.
Right. So kind of uh, an exaggerated, uh, fictionalized depiction of a true kingdom is how they viewed it. Now, what about the uh, the church and the popes? Did they do, because do we have any like uh, actual you know writings of them, that any letters, anything to show that they actually believed in this or not? Absolutely, we do. Uh, I would like to mention two little case studies for this one. But before that, I would like to dehomogenize and and warn about the dangers of uh, thinking of the church in medieval Europe. It's something often that um, people who aren't medievalists bring across to this time period, but it's a little inaccurate because the church isn't a thing. Uh, the church is lots of different popes with lots of different personalities, lots of different local um, you know, bishops and dioceses and so on. So there's a lot of diversity in what we think of as the Catholic church. There was never any official position on Prester John uh, you know, to say, oh, we must all believe in him or we must all not. Like that kind of thing is, is an inaccurate way of thinking. Um, that being said, uh, so we've got two things to talk about. First one is uh, Pope Alexander III's letter. Um, now, this is written in the 1170s, uh, and it's a little bit after the Prester John legend is, be- uh, the Prester John letter, sorry, is believed to have been written. Uh, for a long time, uh, Alexander's letter to Prester John was considered a reply to the Prester John letter. I believe it's not. And this is one of uh, the most fascinating mysteries uh, for me in the Prester John legend. It's still, I think, still worthy of close investigation. Um, The idea in this one letter that's preserved is that Master Philip, who is a doctor working for uh, the Pope, has heard a report somewhere about Prester John and wants to go and meet him. Uh, Prester John, it seems, is very arrogant and bombastic. He thinks he's the head of this and the head of that. And the Pope's essentially writing to him to say, no, I'm the head of the church and you need to kind of like um, submit yourself to me and, and be less boastful and arrogant about your wealth and riches. So there's a lot of questions that we can ask about this. Who is Master Philip? You know, where is he recorded? Is he known about elsewhere? Um this is a, a topic that I was trying to investigate some time ago, but got sidelined and never came back to it. So it's another thread to pick up. Um, the next one is, is the embassy real or is this all symbolic? Uh, is it a symbolic reply to the Prester John letter in some way or another? Uh, or is it a real embassy? If so, where did this person hear about this news and where did he go? Uh we just don't know the answers to any of those questions. So it's a really fascinating uh, little moment, but it just adds more mystery. <laughs> um, so that's one uh, uh, one of the Pope papal letters. The second one I want to talk about is from uh, the Fifth Crusade, which is in the early 1200s. So at this moment, we also get uh, evidence of belief in Prester John among uh, 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 with one Pope and um, the people he's working with. So the Fifth Crusade uh, ended up in Egypt rather than the Holy Land uh, for various reasons we won't go into. And there, uh, the Fifth Crusaders hear news of Chinggis Khan's emergence uh, in East Asia. And he changes the Prester John legend very fundamentally. But um, what they receive is these really garbled reports, which we still have some copies of, written reports of what Chinggis Khan is doing. He went to this town and this town and this town and conquered that place, that place, that place. And the Europeans um, in in Egypt take this as evidence of Prester John emerging to come and help them. They didn't have an understanding of the Mongols yet, uh, even for, you know, 50 years, 100 years beyond this. Arguably, you could say that the the mythologizing about the the Mongols is is, um, a, a learning process. 
Um, but at first, in the uh, 1210s, in Egypt, they take it as evidence that um, Prester John's coming to help them. The word of this gets to the Pope. The Pope writes back to them and says, yeah, Prester John's coming. So let's just actually discuss something else here. Let's move on to the location of Prester John. You mentioned India, but then you mentioned Genghis Khan. And now suddenly so he's moving. The Mongols are not in India. I mean, things are moving around here. And you mentioned Ethiopia early. So I don't know. We should we should ask where they are, but that you you know India, I guess, is the place to start because the letters. And then I don't know if we mentioned Saint Thomas. That's something else that gets associated with this legend. That's with India. So we can start there, and we can kind of talk about how kind of where Prester John is located in the European mind and how he kind of moves around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a very mobile legend, and it's um, mapping according to what is known by the people making the legend. So at first, um, he's in India. But India is not the same as what we think of as India. It is and it isn't. In medieval Europe, they had no way really of knowing much about East Asia because there was no personal experience. So their knowledge of these places is filtered through texts. And the texts are telling them, and by texts, I mean ancient Greek mythology, ancient Roman mythology, and also the Bible. Uh, lots of things kind of gathering information about the East. Um, and sort of filtering it through. So in, in medieval Europe, there was a concept of one India or two Indias or even three Indias, and they're very blurry. If you look at contemporary maps, and there's some great ones you can look up online, like the Ebsdorf Mapamundi, meaning map of the world, or the Hereford map of, map of the world, and these are, are circles with Europe in the bottom left, Africa in the bottom right, and then Asia occupying the top half. And then Asia is really blurry. Uh, it's, it doesn't really look anything like we understand Asia to, to look like today. It's full of myths and legends, little tales from uh, the Bible, monsters here, griffins there, the Garden of Eden, all sort of smooshed together. And that was just their understanding. It was the only way that they could know about these places is through those texts. Um, so at first, Prester John's in India. India had for so many centuries been in the European mindset a place of wealth um, and, you know, lavish opportunity. And it's because of the, the spice trade. They just assumed, okay, if pepper comes from there, uh, you know, cinnamon comes from there, everyone must be mega rich because here in Europe, if you've got a cinnamon stick, you must be a king. So that was the logic, really. Um, they didn't know too much about supply and demand, so it seemed. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, so in, initially India, then with the emergence of Chinggis Khan, really um, Prester John becomes cemented in East Asia. And I'm talking about the early 1200s here. And from then to the 1300s, 1400s, he's really stuck in East Asia. He's either equivalent to the Mongols or someone who was killed by the Mongols or someone who fled the Mongols or someone who allied with the Mongols or against them. And different people say different things about the relationship between the Mongols and, um, and Prester John. Uh, and from the early 1300s onwards, and perhaps a little earlier, depending on how we read the texts, um, there's an association between uh, Prester John and Ethiopia. Ethiopia and Mongolia are very far away from each other in today's maps. Um, in their maps, not so much. They didn't know about the Indian Ocean at this time. So what separated Europe from Africa for them was, in fact, the River Nile. So that means that Ethiopia, in their conception, is right next to uh, India. So that makes the, the movement a lot easier. Uh, and the theories around, uh, our academic theories around how Prester John came to emerge in Ethiopia are, I think, still being developed. 
Um, I'm not an Ethiopian specialist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So when I wrote my book, I was relying on an earlier theory, which I found convincing at the time, which is uh, that the shift was related to an Ethiopian embassy, which took place in the early 1300s. And that embassy uh, went all throughout Europe, um, particularly the Mediterranean areas and, and to Rome. And that on that basis, there was a shift to uh, from Prester John to um, uh, from uh, Mongolia to uh, Ethiopia. I think that's now being unpacked by some uh, uh, good specialists who are working on this area. So I'm excited to see what happens with that idea. Uh, and that's another blurry area that we really need to drill into. Now, regardless of the exact theory, though, Ethiopia or Abyssinia at the time is is a Catholic kingdom, though, in Africa, which is unique. So that's kind of how it part partially how it gets associated. But we'll pick up on Ethiopian in, in a second. I, I just do want to clarify this movement. In, do we know if in the minds of Europeans, do they think Prester John is actually going from point A to B to C? Or is he just moving? And like one century, we thought he was here. And then suddenly now just people think he's here. Meaning they don't think he actually traveled. It's just in their in their mind, the conception, it kind of changed. Well, again, we uh, you can find all of those answers, essentially, which is really fascinating. Um, one of the, th the, uh, the people I like to... Um, uh, uh, I, I would like to mention is uh, Scaliger, Joseph Scaliger. So the idea, he's writing in the late 1500s and he's sitting back in his armchair with several books and basically trying to reconcile them. And that's the kind of person, uh, you know, we're dealing with a, an important scholar of this time period. And he argues, in fact, that um, Prester John was a subordinate to Chinggis Khan. But then because we now associate him with Abyssinia and not with Mongolia, when Chinggis Khan emerged, or uh, you know, Prester John must have ran away, uh, and he fled all the way to um, to Abyssinia. So on that basis, he makes an ethno ethnological argument that the Abyssinians are in fact Asian and fled from Asia, um, which is really fascinating. Um, of course, it's wrong, but you can understand his his logic and his thinking. And I just find this theory really cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was clear, I think, to most uh, Europeans um, by the 1400s, let's say, 1400s, 1600s, that Prester John was very firmly associated with uh, Ethiopia during that time. And you're absolutely right to point out that um, Ethiopia was a uh, Christian kingdom, one of, one of the earliest, in fact. Um, uh, Christian kingdoms. Um, medieval Europeans did have some understanding of this in the 1100s and 1200s, uh, particularly due to their um, uh, contact during the Crusader states. But uh, yeah, it takes a while for that idea of the Prester John being firmly um, uh, stuck with Ethiopia. To a certain extent that in the 13 and 1400s, we can find European leaders writing to the Prester John, and, and that's just the Ethiopian emperor. And at that point, um, in that sort of a textual context, this mythology fades into the background a little bit. It's just like I'm writing to the Prester John and then we ignore all the other um, sort of mythology from the background. So about the mythology, though, uh, we, we described the so kind of the description is kind of these fantastical things, essentially. And that, you know, if anyone's really interested to kind of read the, you know, the letter and the different variations is really reproduced in the book. Uh, some in Latin, there's Latin, and then you have the translation, but really to get a proper sense, really kind of read that kind of this fantastical tale. Yeah, I, I would recommend the letter um, just because I think it's a landmark of medieval imaginative literature. I mean, it's, it's crazy and fun and just, um, you know, a huge romp. And I, and I do think that 
even uh, another aspect of reception history is the people who are adding stuff on, they kind of understand the feeling of the original and then they're adding their own mythological fun elements, adding the Amazons, you know, people who ride fish um, instead of horses, seas of sand that swallow people up, all sorts of things. So now I want to mention, of course, as I said in the beginning, this is part of a uh, series of things on the Ten Lost Tribes. So, and they are, in the, they are present in the letter, so we should mention them. Uh, yeah, I will point out that you're uh, an expert on Prester John, not on the Ten Lost Tribes. Uh, and, and there, you know, a listener's uh, previous episode with uh, Professor Michael Perry, who uh, did mention he's done some work comparing uh, Prester John to uh, in, in kind of the connection to Eldon Adani, Eldon Adanite, and that story. And there's, you know, there have been, uh, so there'll be other, uh, you know, guests on the series that talk about the exact connections and comparisons, those type of things. But at least from your point of view, the Prester John letter, how does it describe? Uh, the tribes and where they're located and their kind of relationship with Prester John? Mm. I would say that um, the the letters are varied in this question. Uh, in general, uh, the, the Ten Lost Tribes can be found in the Prester John kingdom, according to the letter, and uh, subordinate to him. This is just one aspect of sort of like medieval thinking, you know, bringing together so many different uh, things from their understanding from biblical texts, from the, the ancient mythologies, kind of putting them all in Prester John's kingdom to, to create this huge romp. And the, the Ten Lost Tribes and the River Sambation are a part of that. So the River Sambation is uh, mentioned. Uh, it's the legendary river beyond which the Ten Tribes were purportedly exiled. And um, uh, in, in um, you know, Umberto Eco's Baudolino, we, we see it kind of there uh, um, in Prester John's kingdom. Uh, or as the boundary line with Prester John's kingdom. Uh, but the, the text um, describes this as a river of gemstones, uh, which makes everybody super rich. It's not got water, you know, flowing through all these caves. And we also get the rivers of paradise uh, from Genesis uh, being reiterated in um, Prester John's kingdom in various ways. Um, so there's a fascination with landscapes uh, in addition to you know, what the landscapes can do uh, um, uh, as something, you know, wondrous uh, and otherworldly to to the medieval Europeans who are consuming these texts. Yeah, and again, uh, like I said, so stay tuned for other episodes where, you know, the guests discuss more of the, this connection and the, the fact that the that in the European mind and the Prester John legend, the lost tribes were subordinate to Prester John. That's a key point. And someone made them subordinate rather than having, you know, in the European, in the European mind, you know, the Jewish mind, the Ten Lost Tribes were coming to save them. So the Christians had to kind of counter that and say, no, no, they're subordinate to Prester John, the Catholic, you know, the Christian king elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think medieval Europeans wouldn't have uh, coped well to think of, of uh, Jews as, um, you know, having power over them in any way. Um, so you're absolutely right. So what did Prester John kind of symbolize to Europeans? Again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush throughout the centuries. I know that's not really a good thing to do, but I mean, you can break it down if you want. But what, what, did, he, what did he and you know, his kingdom, this whole legend, what did it symbolize to them? That's an excellent question. Um, I would say it's this sort of magical or mystical other world where there's power, wealth and possibility, where everybody's you know faithful to Christianity. There's no disbelief and no liars and cheats and thieves. It's this sort of magical place, like it's a mirror for what they uh, experience in their own lives and the things that they're anxious about, um, uh, you know, poverty, disease, uh, you know, um, whatever, conflict between the secular and the, the, um, the religious, all of these sorts of anxieties that are, are um, 
feeling the European mindset in this time period are reflected as opposites, as this kind of utopic place um, that's almost a little bit, uh, you know, it's obviously unrealistic like all utopias are, but it's it's a reflection. Uh, it's also an opportunity really for um, Christians to satirize each other, uh, which does uh, come out a little bit, particularly through the letter and also at certain moments of, uh, of textual iteration where one person's writing a, a Prester John letter to satirize another person. Kind of... So I, I don't know if we mentioned kind of the uh, the searching for Prester John. You know, obviously this is, you know, you said besides the fantastical part, something gets associated with Ethiopia. People think there's a, this kind of this Prester John even without the fantastical elements. So people are going to go searching. You know, we have this with the, with the Los Charizards, such about people are always searching for them. So here you have people searching for Professor John. There's kind of missions, ambassadors going, being sent. I think the King of Portugal sent someone. Well, what, what, what is, what's the story with that? Well, we have a various uh, group of people who are looking for Prester John. Um, it's very rarely or never the only or main object of inquiry. Uh, so I mentioned the letter of Alexander III from the 1170s, and he's sending off a guy allegedly um, by the name of Master Philip to find Prester John. That would seem to be, if it's a real embassy, which we have no idea, uh, that would seem to be the only real moment in which seeking Prester John is the main and only objective of a mission. But we just don't know anything about what happened, whether it was real or symbolic or where this guy went. Uh, after that, with the rise of Chinggis Khan in the 1200s, we get a lot more embassies being sent eastwards. And uh, they end up in... Persia, Mongolia, um, you know, even across to China uh, with the aim to convert the Mongol Khans and, uh, you know, to um, evangelize China and all sorts of things like that, which are hugely fascinating. Um, but uh, the people who encounter Prester John allegedly um, express disappointment and say, you know, his lands are nothing like I heard they were or else they say that he's just over the hill that I didn't get to, um, this kind of thing. Uh, from there into the 13 and 1400s, we get um, uh, some um, uh, leaders sending missions across to find Prester John in India or various locations in association with finding the origins of spices, which was a key aim uh, for late medieval lords. Uh, now, the Portuguese have a particular um, angle on Prester John. Of course, Portugal is a coastal country and they're very close to Africa. So you sail down to Africa uh, and then Portuguese kind of explorers were, were going around Africa, uh, eventually around the Horn and across um, from, you know, uh, uh, the Gulf of Aden across to um, to India via, uh, you know, the Saudi Arabian region. So across that way, and then they found their way to India. So some of the missionaries or um, or explorers who are looking for Prester John ended up dead. Uh, some of them ended up in India, some of them splitting up in different locations. But um, there, are, there are a few, I think, that we can speak of from that period uh, who are explicitly looking for Prester John as a secondary aim of their journeys, which is really fascinating. And there's, in fact, a uh, statue in South Africa uh, that is dedicated to all the, the sailors who, who were looking for Prester John, something like that. Fascinating. So let's fast forward a little bit. 17th, 18th century. What happens to Prester John in your uh, book? This this uh, part, like the last part, is titled "The Unraveling." I believe it's called "The Un Un Unraveling Prester John." So, what kind of happens 
at that point? Well, in this time period, we've got a lot of Orientalists um, sort of coming out and, and developing theories and ideas about Prester John. We've got increased contact with uh, you know various um, uh, uh, locations across the world in Africa and Asia among Europeans. And uh, what this means is that they're becoming a lot more well-versed in the languages and cultures of these foreign places, particularly Ethiopia. We have some people studying Ethiopian languages and saying, okay, this is where the term Prester John comes from because it comes from this phrase from an Ethiopian language. And so that must be it. We have others looking back at the ancient, uh, the um, earlier texts, the medieval texts, and saying, no, Prester John was in Asia. So then he was in Europe and then developing theories. So it becomes almost this academic inquiry. You know, where is Prester John? Who is he? Why did he move from Asia to Africa? And, and developing theories all around that. It's not until the mid-1700s that you get at least the first person that I'm aware of in, in, in the record uh, to say, no, Prester John doesn't exist now and then never existed. So that's actually from the 1700s. And even after that, we still get people kind of like developing some of the older theories. Even some big names like Voltaire uh, writes about Prester John and, and reiterates the idea that he was actually in Asia and not in Ethiopia. So um, it largely comes down to respect for Marco Polo, which was a hugely influential text uh, in the early modern period uh, with regard to um, developing European conceptions of Asia. So if, you know, Marco Polo said he's over here, okay, cool, well, then that means he's over here. But, I mean, yeah, there's, it's a really swirling world with lots of different um, references. You even can find Prester John mentioned in one of the Bronte sisters' novels. Like, it's just uh, so known and, and discussed, and, and it's a really fascinating thing. We get his infusion into fictional texts, even from the the 13th century, but uh, later in the early modern period as well. Some contemporaries of Shakespeare put him as this famous knight or whatever, um, you know, in, in their fictional texts. So he he becomes almost like a meme that gets reiterated and reused in so many different ways in, in different contexts. It's, it's And this is, I think, an underexplored part of the Prepter John legend, the way he becomes so... Um, like idolized or or he's got status. He's he's just known. If you mention the Prester John, everyone knows who it is and what's going on. And I think that there's so much there that can be looked at closer as well. And and you know you mentioned like the meme. There becomes a lot of engravings and paintings depicting him. Uh, your book in the beginning has one. There's a lot of various you know in the imagination of Europeans of what this Prester John looks like. Is was there any? Was it was it like? Allowed. I don't know if that's the right word to to be said. Oh, Presser John got killed. You know, was Presser John? And any, did any did any of them think that you know at one point he was killed, or was this was this magical kingdom, this magical person or people? And he was not. That was not the case. It was impossible. Yeah, uh, the, the the dominant theory, really, I think, in this time period, like let's say fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred, is really that Prester John shouldn't be associated with the Abyssinians because he was, in fact, quote unquote, uh, an Asian uh, figure from an earlier time period, and they get that knowledge from those travelogues. But I mean, beyond that, there's so much theory making, which is fascinating. Uh, we've even got evidence of Europeans asking the emperor of Ethiopia. Have you heard of this term Prester John that everyone calls you in Europe? And then the Ethiopian emperor says, nah, what's that? Um, basically. Um, so that was a really fascinating moment too. Uh, but we get um basically uh, it's almost like as new elements of geography or culture are being added to the European knowledge set, it's like Prester John becomes that new thing, and then they're developing connections. So even in the 1600s, after the discovery of Tibet. Uh, by Europeans, obviously others knew about Tibet. 
Um, uh, after that moment, Professor John gets associated with Tibet, uh, or with the Dalai Lama, or with um, you know the the head of the Church of the East. So they just kind of cobble it together, and it pulls together the myth over many many centuries. Something that personally fascinates me is that nobody has ever found um, links between uh, Prester John and the Americas or Prester John and Australia. So I hold out hope that one day someone will find a European who says, oh, yeah, I found Prester John in, you know, um, Western Utah or something like that. But that would be fascinating to me. But I don't think uh, nothing like that is known at present, which is a really interesting question as to why um, we only get associations between Prester John and the old world, not the, the new world. Yeah, which is something very interesting because this being a series on the 10 lost tribes, the lost tribes do get placed in the Americas. I mean, uh, from the Jewish point of view, there's Antonio de Montezinos, but there's, there'll be podcast episodes on uh, Menashe Ben Yisrael and Ismikvi Yisrael. This happens with, I think, uh, Christians do as well. The lost tribes are placed in the Americas. But like mm-hmm. you're saying, Preston John is, is never placed there. And, I, and Menashe Ben Yisrael mentioned Menashe Ben Israel in his Mikvi Yisrael. Because he, you know, he talks about how... how, how you know, he goes through different theories and how they would have would have gotten there, you know, how how they would have migrated over kind of thing. So it's an interesting thing that, like you're saying, they don't end up there. So I do want to talk about your your volume because it is uh, kind of prime. You know, there's an introduction and there's a lot there's a lot more, but it's kind of the primary text and translation. So what what was included? What did you include in this volume? Uh, I essentially wanted to bring together all of the texts um, presented in uh, accessible English to people who don't know medieval Latin. That was, I guess, the major aim, but also in the latter sections to explore uh, later manifestations of the Prester John legend than the ones that were very well trodden from the 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, So, yeah, that's, I guess, the main aim. Um, I understand that the Prester John legend has a really broad arc from the 1100s through even to the 1800s. So not everybody is expert uh, in all of the different European languages from that time period. So that was the primary aim to make this legend, which is so important in our history because it drove exploration ideals and and this kind of stuff. I I wanted to make it a lot more accessible and understandable. So that was the primary aim. Uh, So it's, it's, I guess, got a dual dual aim, which is one, I think, for for non-specialist readers, non-academics, you can access the text and have a look and at least get a, a, a gist of the of the legend and its various manifestations. But uh, it's also relevant, I hope, for academics and um, a, a lot of people have been using it in that space as well. Uh, you know, an, an Ethiopianist uh, who works with Ethiopian languages can now read and understand something in medieval Latin, which presumably uh, that person would not be able to read. So, yeah, it's really, uh, I guess, a... A logistical thing, even to facilitate further research and, and understanding. Yeah, I'll just mention the different sections, as you call them, instead of chapters of, of the book. And it goes through a lot of what we spoke about. The first one is, is your introduction, believing in Prester John, as you titled it. Then there's section one, the beginnings of the beginnings of Prester John in the 12th, 12th century. Section two, Prester John in the fifth crusade, early 13th century. Section three, Mongols and travel writers, mid 13th to 14th centuries. Section four, Prester John in Africa, 15th to early 17th centuries. Section five, legends and lies, late 16th, early 17th centuries. And section six, six, unraveling Prester John, 17th and 18th centuries. And there's a number of appendices here as well. So it's over 300 pages. There's a lot of material there. I I will uh, link to the book in the show's notes for anyone interested in purchasing it. It's about $50. Um, 
and it, it's I guess fairly affordable. I don't know what people call books affordable, but again, you know, uh, it, yes, I'll link to that for those interested in it. Uh, what about any other reading? I know you made mention of some stuff earlier. What about other reading on Presta John besides for uh, your book, which is the primary sources? Uh, so there has been some advances made since the publication of this book. So uh, I've actually been contemplating in the back of my mind whether it might need an updated version, and that's something I might discuss with the, the publishers and, and work on over the next few years. Um, but we'll see how we go with that. But there has been some great work done by other scholars, such as John Eldovic, Ahmed Shair, Victoria Krebs, who is an Ethiopian-focused uh, scholar, um, and Marco Giardini, and they're exploring various aspects of the legend the links between the legend and other um, fictional depictions, more understanding of the Ethiopian resonances of, of this particular legend, some under, some analysis of how um, the Prester John letter links to eschatological concepts uh, from the time period, which is really fascinating as well. So there's been a lot of advances, I think, um, and, and I'm fascinated and uh, um, can't wait to see what else uh, the scholarly community can, can find and dig up about Prester John. Honestly, it's it's a legend with such a broad arc that has for so long really escaped, I think, focused and detailed attention. Uh, and I think it's deserving of that, particularly at different uh, discrete moments of time where we actually look at each individual uh, and focus on what's going on in that time period to make them think this. Uh, those sorts of questions for me are very fascinating and and, and lots, lots of potential there. Okay, great. I also, I'll make mention there's a podcast that I enjoy, uh, Our Fake History, as a episode, episode number 57. Was there a real Prester John? And that was from 2018. You can find that there. Anyone interested in uh, checking that out? I can put it in the link in the show's notes as well. You can check out that, uh, uh, that ep podcast episode. Um, and, and like I said in the beginning, you know, even though this is uh, 10 Lost Tribes and Jewish Consciousness, and this was not a, a Jewish uh, story per se, but it does come up. It's come up in the podcast already been discussed. It'll come up in future podcasts. It, you can't get away from the legend in uh, the Lost Tribes context. So I, I felt it was important to include an episode. And uh, thank you, Dr. Brewer, for joining me to uh, discuss and explain the Presser John legend. You're welcome. It's my pleasure.